Our world today seems wild and out of control. It seems almost impossible for ordinary people to make wise decisions that can keep them safe and healthy. Welcome to Words from the Wildwood. I am your host, Richard Stidham, and I hope to give you today a better understanding of what is really happening in the world around you and how you can hear God's voice over the noise of the world around us. Let's go today to our new segment. Welcome back, everyone, to our study in the book of Revelation. Let's catch up to where we're at. John has introduced the victorious Messiah at the end of chapter 1. This new image of Jesus, this non-shepherd, this non-mild, kind, healing man has come back as the victorious Messiah, returning in power, returning in judgment. Now in chapters 2 and 3, we're going to deal with the vision that Jesus gives to John that he wants them to share with the churches of his day. That vision, the seven reactions or lifestyles that believers can adapt for themselves depending on the situations they encounter in their life. Now your question to consider today as you go through this study are twofold. One, what church do you attend? And two, which lifestyle looks most like you? Let's go ahead and jump in today. We are in Revelation chapter 2, Seven Reactions. We'll be continuing this next week. We'll have four today, three next week. The first reaction I want you to see is what we can call the Ephesian reaction. Revelation 2, verse 1. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands, says... I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. So what's happening is these false prophets are coming in. They are pretending to be uh, Christians. They are pretending to represent the people in Jerusalem to bring this gospel. And they find these problems. They find these inconsistencies in them. We see the same problem happening in our world today. People who go without training, people who go without serious commitment to Christ, they are simply there to encourage or to glad hand or to build people up. And they basically bring a false gospel. Now it says in verse 3, You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. Jesus told us, If they hate me, they're going to hate you. And if they have persecuted me, they will persecute you for my name's sake. But he reminds us we are blessed when this happens. Verse 4 continues, but I have this against you. Okay, so he said all these wonderful things about them. He said these great ways that they're standing out. And if these things were said about us or our church, we would probably be extremely proud going, hey, we're doing our job. We're holding the line. We're not giving in. But then Jesus says this, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Ouch. Could there be a more painful statement from the Messiah to his followers? Now, John has found himself on the Isle of Patmos. He is a prisoner. He is basically alone on this desolate rock, left to die in this Roman penal colony. And he has nothing really to cling on to but his own life. But now God has brought him this vision. 
and he hears this very first indictment of the church in Ephesus that you have abandoned the love you had at first. He says, remember then how far you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Do the things that showed your commitment to me. Do the things that showed that you put your relationship to me above all other relationships. Uh, Jesus told his followers, you're going to have to let your relationship to me shine brighter than your relationship to your mother, your father, your family. It, by comparison, it's going to seem as though you have no regard or no, no disdain for your parents and family because your commitment to me will be so overwhelming. He says this, repent, do the things you did at first, otherwise it will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember in the earlier vision of Jesus, he is standing there among the seven lampstands, meaning that he is present with them. So he says, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand, remove your church from its place, remove you from your place. And then he says, unless you repent. Here is the hope always when we deal with a life or a church or a group that has become inconsistent. There is always the chance to repent. The Bible tells us clearly we are taught how to live our lives so that we don't sin against God. But if we do sin, if we become aware of that sin, then all we have to do is come to him, repent, and agree with him that we are wrong. Agree that we have gotten off the track. Ask him to forgive us, cleanse us, wash us, and let us start again. No matter how old you are or how young you are, I tell you right now, no matter how far from where you were when you were young, Christian, when you were powerful, when you felt in charge, God can restore you to that intimate personal relationship today if you will only tell him, Lord, I have messed up. I have gotten off the track. I have, I have lost my love for you. Yes, I, I love the fight. I love to get in there and argue about doctrine. And I love to get in there and say, no, the Bible says this and the Bible says that. But you know what? If we don't have love, the Bible says we're a sounding gong. And if we are a sounding gong today, if our church is nothing but fighters, right fighters, then we need to get in there and repent. Verse 6 says this, Yet you have this, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We're going to skip over them for a second because they show up again later in another church. And I want to talk about it then because it's going to all flow together if we do that. So he says, you know what? You, you have lost this first love. You have grown cold toward me. You're just living the life. You're just focused on the fight. But I, I want you to know I see that you don't like this teaching of the Nicolaitans and the things that they do. He says in verse 7, anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This is for all Christians everywhere. If you have the ability to understand spiritual teaching, then listen to what the Spirit says about being good and right and focused and all these things, but your heart's grown cold toward the Spirit. You see, this church here in Ephesus, it had the right doctrine but it was focused on the fight to the exclusion of all other things. They had forgotten exactly what Jesus said in John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. And that's the important part. You see, the commandment to love one another, that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. But to love people the way Jesus loved 
his disciples. That compassionate love, that patient love, that enduring love. And sometimes that love called for correction. It called for dressing people down. You know, Peter says, I'm going to be with you always. And then he says, no, you're going to deny me three times. And then Jesus says, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not, Lord. You're not going to die. He says, what? Get behind me, Satan, because you're getting in the way of what I need to do. So basically, sometimes love has to step out. So just as I have loved you, you love others. You are also to love one another, you know, other Christians, other believers, even if they're in other churches, as long as Jesus Christ is Lord, we have that common bond. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have this agape, this sacrificial giving love for one another. Sometimes uh, if we get a bunch of Christians together, sometimes we seem so different in the music that we like or the sports activities we like or in, in, in the way we like to dress or to go to worship services. Some people like only hymns and some people like contemporary worship songs and some say only the piano and some say uh, you know rock and roll instruments and some say no instruments at all. But none of that is important. Why? It's the love that we have for Jesus Christ that spills over into the love we have for each other. I have lived around this world and everywhere I go, I run into believers. And when I run into believers in Jesus Christ, I instantly have a connection to them. Even if our language is different, we were raised different, different sides of the world, we have Jesus Christ in common. So remember, love is very special and that love helps one another. Love heals. It heals those who are broken, those who are hurt, those who've messed up, those who've, who've done harm to themselves and to others. But you know what? That love also confronts. It confronts the one who is bitter, confronts the one who is angry, convicts the one who is self-righteous and the one who thinks they can do it better than anybody else. Love helps, heals, confronts, and corrects. This is what was lost in the church of the Ephesians. They had lost this love. So the question for us becomes this, do we love Jesus Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, spirit, body? Yeah, we can have the right teachings, but sometimes our spirits can grow cold or angry or bitter. And when that happens, we have to go to the Lord and we have to ask him to clean us up, to clean us and correct us so that we can repent and that our light will not cease to shine in the world. Now, the next church we see is in verse 8. The next reaction that we have is called the Smyrnian reaction. The church at Smyrna is the more we're talking about. This is verse 8. Write to the angel or to the elder or to the pastor of the church in Smyrna. The first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, says. Now, this is how Jesus identifies himself when he speaks to John in chapter 1 as the Alpha and the Omega, the one who died in the crucifixion, who was raised to life. He says in verse 9, I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. Remember, it was very possible for a Jewish family if somebody converted to Christianity and they left behind the law of Moses, they could be declared dead to the family. They could be cast out without money or food or job or care or provision. They would not be welcome in anyone's home. They would be cast out of the synagogues. They could truly lose all earthly possessions. 
But he reminds them right here, you are rich in your faith, rich in your relationship to God, to the one who says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, and they are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Now, by synagogue of Satan, he simply means enemies of the cross. The word Satan is the word accuser, the word enemy. It means that these people who are clinging to Judaism, clinging to the law, but have no grace, no mercy, no forgiveness, they have become a synagogue of the accuser of Satan. It says in verse 10, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Not, not if you suffer, but when you suffer. You are about to suffer, he tells them. And when you do, don't be afraid. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you and you will have affliction for 10 days. As, as in the ancient world, the 10 days was not considered an extremely long period of time. It was long enough to, to do bodily harm, mental harm, and to, to injure a person. But it was considered relatively short. So he is saying to the people, you're going to experience a period of affliction. And it may seem incredibly long to you, but in the long run, you will come through it relatively quickly. Now the part that no one likes. He says this, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The word crown there is the word Stephanos, not the word diadem. Diadem is the crown of the king. It's the crown of royalty. The Stephanos was the victor's crown, often awarded at things like the Olympics, you know. You would win, they would put a laurel wreath on your head, and they would hold it up as a crown. Now, laurel leaves are beautiful, and they are firm when they are young and tender, but as it ages, they, they grow bitter, brittle, and they fall apart. So, they, that, that glory uh, of an earthly crown would fit, would fade and fall apart. In fact, you were only considered an Olympic champion for that day. And after that, they could not say that you were the greatest in the world. You were the greatest at that moment. And it was a temporary thing. He says, be faithful to death. And I will give you this Stephanos, this victor's crown of life. Remember, we lost access to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. We lost access to eternal life when our great, 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 great grandparents were kicked out. But now he's saying, if you stay faithful, if you hold to me, if you are faithful even unto death, I will make sure you have this crown of life. You will live even though you die. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The victor will never be harmed by the second death. We are not going to know of the second death until we get later in the book of Revelation. The second death is the ultimate punishment of those who have rejected Christ. They will die physically to this, this world, and then they will go to the judgment. When the devil, his angels, all of those who have rejected Christ will be thrown into that lake of fire. It will be sealed up for eternity, never to be released again. That is the second death, the ultimate separation from God, the ultimate isolation and separation that they will have to endure. So the one who is victorious by being faithful even unto death, they will experience this. It's interesting because um, J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a Christian, in his book, The Fellowship of the Ring, he wrote this line in, in that book. He said, faithless is he who says farewell when the road darkens. Because hard times will come. The faithful friend is the one who stays committed even though he comes to the end of his own life and the end of the road and he is sacrificed. That's why uh, 
Bilbo Baggins at the end of the whole thing says to Samwise Gamgee, you know, Sam, I'm glad that I was with you here at the end of all things. And it's it's an amazing uh, moment in the book and in the movie for that fact. And it's exactly what he's talking about here. Stay faithful. Don't quit. If it's persecution at work, if it's persecution in school, if it's losing relationships, losing opportunities, losing friends who don't want to be friends with some religious fanatic, that's fine. Because Deuteronomy 31.6 says this, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is Yahweh your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. He is telling them before they go into the promised land, be strong, be courageous. Don't be afraid of these Canaanite people. Don't let the dread of them uh, make your heart shake because Yahweh will go before you. And it's exactly what we have to know that Yahweh goes before us today the same way he went before them. It's interesting that 50 years after the death of John, after he had returned from the Isle of Patmos, he had written his... um, his letter of revelation, and it was distributed. 50 years after that, there was a pastor in this church. There was a pastor who was 86 years old. And when they came to him and they said, Pastor Polycarp, we we will allow you to continue to preach this Jesus person, but you have to worship the emperor. You have to bow down to the emperor. And at the age of 86, Polycarp said no. I will not worship a man. I worship only God. Polycarp was burned to death. 50 years after this was written as a confirmation of everything that Jesus had spoken to John in this revelation. So basically when it came right down to it, the the church at Smyrna did experience terrible persecution. And it was lived out all those years later, but we see the truth of it. Now, the third reaction, that third church that we're going to look at, is the church at Pergamon. So the Pergamon reaction is what we're going to call it. It's in verse 12. This is what he says. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamon, the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword, says. Now, remember, chapter 1, that double-edged sword is coming out of the mouth of the victorious Messiah of the conquering Messiah. I told you double-edged swords were only used in battle. They were only used in combat. So this is a this is a war weapon, and this is the Messiah coming for war. So his his sword is sharpened, and the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. So the one who has the sharp double-edged sword says, "I know where you live, where Satan's throne is." Now, interestingly, in the city of Pergamon, it was built on a citadel, a high mountain peak. On top of the citadel was basically a temple dedicated to Zeus. Now, the altar to Zeus on top of the citadel there was shaped like a giant throne. So it's no wonder that the spirit would speak and would talk about where Satan's throne is because it was there in this place. And there, there was a great worship of Zeus. And there his name was, you know, was lifted up and everyone fell before it. He says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan lives. 
Antipas was, we believe, the pastor here in Pergamon, and he was a pastor who would not bow down to Zeus. He would also not cave in to the emperor worship that was common in the empire in those days. His death was particularly gruesome in that they made a brass bull, a hollow brass bull. They heated it, superheated it to a high temperature where it almost glowed, the metal glowed, and they threw him into it and roasted him alive inside the belly of this brass bull. So you see, even in those terrible days, even facing that that painful horrible, searing death. He would not relent and go back on the name of Jesus. I know what you're thinking. This church has to get praised for men like Antipas who would not cave. But then in verse 14, he says this, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. Now you remember this because what happened is uh, Balak called Balaam, who was a prophet of God. He says, curse these people, curse these Israelites, and, and get rid of them. And so, so uh, Balaam comes and he's going to take the money. And then God says, don't do it. Don't you dare curse my people. Instead, you bless my people. And so he did several times. He was called to curse them. And instead, he blessed them. And finally, uh, King Balak said, you know, I, I, you're not going to do what I want you to do. Get away from me. So what happened is right before he left, Balaam said, oh, by the way, King Balak, here's how you nail the Israelites. You take your most beautiful women and you send them into the camp, dressed for uh, fun activities, shall we say. Send them in there and let them lure the men into this sexual immorality. Then let the women draw them into the worship of your gods. And in doing that, you will destroy the Israelites from within. Unfortunately, this plan worked extremely well. And for that, Balaam was blamed and, and his his uh, ability to, to, to work for the Lord was, was, was repealed, was repented, was taken away. And so basically, that's exactly what you have some of those who hold to that teaching of Balaam. So what does that teaching look like? Consider this. Balaam had the chance to honor God by giving his messages and walking away. Instead, he gave in to the money to give the king what the king wanted. How many pastors today give in to the desires of their congregations by saying what their itching ears want to hear? You already know that scripture. They basically will say exactly what the congregation wants. They will avoid certain topics that are unpleasant. I have known churches in the past where the deacons have come to the pastor and said, Pastor, we want you to stop preaching on these issues. Stop preaching on these things because you're hurting our feelings. And I don't know why you would want to phrase it that way, but they did. And they said, basically, you, you are interfering with us by preaching this stuff. So stop it or we're going to stop your salary or we're not going to pay you or we're going to turn you out. And do you know how many pastors, rather than lose a salary, lose a lucrative deal, rather than diminish the size of their congregation, will preach and say anything that people want to hear to keep their numbers up, to keep their listeners up, 
to keep their salary up. That's exactly what we have going on today. We have people who are basically selling out the gospel. Now it says up here that, you know, you guys are hanging on. Guys like Antipas were doing a great job, but you've got these other people who are in your midst and you are allowing them to compromise the message of the gospel. He says in verse 15, in the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? The history of the Nicolaitan people are, is a very confused one. Some people believe that Nicholas is one of those early uh, deacons that was sent to serve the church and that somehow he became corrupted. He became corrupted by the power, by the position, by the authority by the authority invested in him. In fact, if you go into Timothy and Titus, it says don't take a young believer and give him this kind of power. Don't take a young person who doesn't know the gospel well and allow them to exercise this kind of authority because they're going to be carried away by it. They're going to be taken with the power. I've seen pastors fall simply because they got their eyes off of Jesus and got their eyes on all of the things that they could possess. But now the Nicolaitans had another thing. And looking at some of the historical references, these Nicolaitans embraced sensuality and hedonism. Now, later in the next century, you're going to have something called Neo-Gnosticism or, or Proto-Gnosticism. This Proto-Gnosticism basically says that the flesh and blood is wicked and the spirit is pure. So if my spirit is pure with Jesus, then I can do anything I want to with my body because the body is just physical stuff. It's just flesh and blood. It doesn't matter what my body does if my mind and my spirit are pure. You can hear that today. You can hear that in the way people talk. They'll talk about going to church. They'll talk about reading their Bible. But you'll look at the lifestyle they lead, and it is not at all anything that honors God. It's very much like the Nicolaitans. I'll drink what I want to drink. I'll sleep with who I want to sleep with. I will go do these things, cuss, swear, fight, do anything I want to do because it's just flesh and blood. But my spirit still praises Jesus, so I must be okay. Now that's very interesting because in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we see a different conversation going on. Very different. And in 1 Corinthians 8, 8 through 11, it says this, food will not commend us to God. You see some Judaizers came in and they said, uh, you have to eat a certain way and you have to stay off a certain diet and you can't do this and you can't do that. And uh, oh, if, if, you, if there's a, a party going on at this local temple and they're serving you food, you can't touch any of it because it's all sacrificed to these false gods. Well, if they're false gods, exactly who are they sacrificed to? We don't know. But he says this, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours, this ability to choose, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Basically, it goes like this. If you know that it's okay 
to, let's say, have a beer on Sunday afternoon. But someone comes into your sphere of influence, they've struggled with alcoholism, they've struggled with some other things, and they come in and they see you doing this, and it seems to have no impact, no effect on you. Maybe they're encouraged to follow your example, and by doing that, they wind up getting themselves in trouble. There are some people who are strong enough to do some things, you know, and, and we don't want to get into all that because it's not important. What's important is that when I do something, I do something so that I blesses other people and not blesses myself. As a pastor for the last 30 years, I don't drink. Not because I think it's wrong, but because I don't want to be someone who sets off someone else. I don't want to be someone who takes that weak brother, that person who struggled with alcohol, that person who struggled with whatever else, and I don't want to send them down a road of self-destruction because then it's not a loving thing that I'm doing. It's not a kind thing that I'm doing. And that's exactly what was happening right here. They basically were saying, hey, I have the right to eat this. I have the right to drink this. I, I have the right to be involved in these types of things. Therefore, I'm going to go ahead and do it, but they're not looking at what they're doing to other people. Verse 16 again said, Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What is that sword? The word of God that convicts our spirit. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is a very clear image from the old world when someone won a uh, gladiatorial game or a, a sports event or they won some sort of competition. They were given a white stone. The white stone was used as an entrance announcement to a large feast or a party. So when you went, they would say, where's your invitation? And you would present your white stone and it would show that you had one access to this event. Well, we are given the white stone that gives us access to Jesus Christ by his sacrifice on the cross. So we have this white stone that brings us access. We have this new name by which Christ calls us that shows that we are his child. So yes, we are doing all these great things up here, but we can't get involved in this hypersensuality. I have heard pastors say that we cannot hold people today to the standards of yesterday. We cannot say to people, you can't have sex before marriage. We can't say to people, you can't, involved, you can't be involved in same-sex marriage. We can't say to people, you can't do this, 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 or that. And um, they were willing to uh, give everybody all this freedom rather than actually say, no, God has a standard for how these things work. And that is what was happening here at the church. They were sort of compromising on all of these things. We're going to come to the last church right now, this uh, church at Thyatira. So the Thyatiran reaction to the world of its day can be seen very much in the world today. He says in verse 18, Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. Remember, those are symbols of judgment. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. Your last works are greater than the first. But I have this against you. See, his praises are very short. Yeah, you're hanging to it. 
But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her practices. There it is again, a chance to repent of her practices. I will kill her children with the plague. Then all who commit adultery with her into the great tribulation, unless they repent of her practices. Oh, sorry. I will kill her children with the plague. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the deep things of Satan, as they say, I do not put any other burden on you, but hold on to what you have until I come. The one who is victorious and keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he who will shepherd them with an iron scepter, he will shatter them like pottery, just as I have received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Anyone who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh, wow, there's so much here to unpack. First of all, every Jew, every Jew would have known the history of their own country. They would have known that Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab. She was the daughter of a Canaanite leader. She was also a Canaanite priestess, which means she practiced all of the religious fertility rights, sexual rights known in the Canaanite religions. And when she married King Ahab, she brought all of those perverse practices into the throne room and into the people of Israel. In fact, uh, many of Ahab's perversions that he practiced during his time, many of the sick religions that he reinstituted were directly responsible, uh, were, were directly in a response to what Jezebel wanted from him. If you want to see an example of this, look in 1 Kings 19, 1 through 3. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done because he had gone on Mount Carmel. He had faced the prophets of Baal, all of them against just him. He had set up the test so that they could call down fire to take up their offering to their gods. Nothing happened. Then he took his, he soaked it in water, he put water all over it so that it couldn't burn, and then he simply made a prayer to God, and God answered. So then Ahab told Jezebel, uh, Dear, I think we're in trouble because God just took their, their sacrifice and our gods did not take ours. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword because every prophet of Baal, he had slaughtered them because they, they had failed. And he was showing the people of Israel that they were false prophets. That was the punishment for a false prophet to be killed. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, meaning kill me, and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Basically, you got 24 hours to live, and then I'm going to have you dead just the way you killed all my prophets and priests. Then he, Elijah was afraid. He rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So basically, she was a powerful woman, 
And she says, you killed my prophets. You have killed all these men who serve my gods. I'm going to do this to you. So he said, you know what? I'm out of here. He picked up. He fled. He left. He ran south to get away because she was that dangerous. She was that uh, evil and that bent. So basically, she was not a woman who had any respect for God or the God of Israel at all. And that's why um, when it talks about this woman here being a, you tolerate the woman Jezebel, whether or not the Thyatiran woman was actually named Jezebel, doesn't matter. The name conjures up the image of exactly what she did. He's bas she's basically doing the same things that the Nicolaitans did, basically uh, bringing back all this licentiousness, this, this, this behavior which was completely unacceptable, the sexual immorality. She's trying to bring it all back into the city and, and she's trying to bring people over. Now, what you don't understand is this. After people began to be one to Jesus Christ, there were women who were one to Christ who had been cultic prostitutes. That means they had practiced prostitution in the service of their gods. But as they were set free from that lie, as they were vindicated from that lie, they came out of their, of their positions and they lost authority. They lost power. Within the Christian world, they no longer could practice their religion. They could no longer practice their trade by which they made money. And they no longer had the authority and people coming to them and seeking after them and bribing them and giving them money to show them all these things that they could do. Now suddenly they get into this Christian church and some of the people who were coming out of paganism, they were coming out of these pagan religions, they were accustomed to having female prophets, female priests who were practicing this cultic religion, this prostitution religion, and they wanted that back. They wanted back those women, they wanted back those practices because they were accustomed to it. And when they didn't have it, they, they started to seek it out and they found it in, the, in, these, in these women who had been converted, supposedly converted, and now said, hey, come back and do for us again what you did before. Be this, uh, be this prophetess, be this person again. And it was, it was a terrible time in the church and they have totally forgotten everything that Paul has said in 2 Corinthians 5.10. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. So here's the thing. You cannot be saved by your works. Every one of us, if our works are stacked up, have nothing. We have nothing that recommends us to Christ. We have nothing that recommends us to heaven. We have only things that count against us. Now, when Christ has saved us, he has saved us to do good works. And the good works mean staying away from the evil, repenting of that, keeping back from the practices that maybe marked our life very heavily before. And so the question that becomes here is, these last churches that we've looked at, we've looked at churches that suffer, churches that have compromised on religious teachings, compromised on lifestyle. And the question we have to ask is, is any of that true of us? Have any of us compromised? Have we held to the letter? Have we been like the second church? Have we been like those people who are willing to die, who are willing to suffer, who are willing to not compromise 
because we know what we need. The, the, the people at the church at Smyrna, and by the way, the word Smyrna is actually the word for myrrh. And myrrh was a spice used to embalm the dead. So their, their name was very, very apropos. They were dying to serve Christ. They were dying in his service because they wouldn't change, they wouldn't compromise as the other churches had. Now, there are churches in America today that are dying. They're not dying because they don't have the truth. They're not dying because um, they don't have sound doctrine. They're dying because people don't want to hear it anymore. People don't want to hear um, the old songs. They don't want to hear the old gospel. You know, there's that song I've heard an old, old story about the Savior who came from glory. They don't want to sing that anymore. They just want to have something lighter, easier. They want to have a modified gospel that doesn't hurt their feelings, a modified gospel that doesn't require sacrifice of them, doesn't require them to say no to themselves, but that allows them to do whatever they want to do so long as they just give God the praise for it in the end. Uh, and so that's the world we live in. Now, we've looked at the first four churches and kind of um, asked ourselves the question, is that us? Is Are we those people? Have we sold out on those issues of doctrine or, or, or behavior? And, and are we the people who are willing to take a stand and not, not budge at all? Most importantly, go back to the first church, the church at Ephesus. Is your love for Christ still burning strong do you get out there and preach jesus not to prove you're right not to prove others are wrong not to prove that they're sinners are you you're not out there to fight just because you want to fight you're out there to fight because your love for people moves you to reach out to them to pull them in to call them away from the flames to call them away from the edge and that's really what we have to think about tonight chapter two the heroes those who love so much, they are willing to sacrifice to save whosoever may come. I want you guys to have a great time today, a great reflection on this. Find yourself in these four churches. If you don't, don't worry. We have three more lifestyles, three more churches to go. We'll see you in the Word. Thank you for joining us today on Words from the Wildwood. We are a listener-supported program presented without commercial interruption. If you have enjoyed this program and want to support our outreach, please send any gifts to Richard Stidham, P.O. Box 1321, Baytown, Texas 77521. Thank you for listening today. God bless, and we will see you again in the Wildwood.